Hi there. I'm delighted to be on Legends of Tabletop today. My name is Ellen Datlow, and I'm a short story editor. I edit short story. I've been editing short stories in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Oh, about since 1980 or so, when I started work at Omni Magazine, and I've been I moved more into horror over the years, but I still edit short science fiction occasionally and novellas. So hi, and anthologies. Yes. Yes, specifically the year's best and best of the best. Well, best of the, yes. I used to do the year's best fantasy and horror, um, mm -hmm. Terry Windling, for, and mm -hmm. then for Gavin uh, Grant and Kelly Link. That was for about 21 volumes. And then um, after that, I've been, sent for about 10 years now, I've been editing the best horror of the year for Nightshade. And yes, best of the best horror of the year is coming out, um, I think next month, maybe this month, probably next month. And that is going, and that is my favorite stories from all the 10 years that I actually edited, have been editing the best horror of the year, which is tough, but. I can imagine. How do you just pick the, the amount that's allotted to go into those volumes? Well, well, the best of the best was tough. Well, it was easy and it was tough. I mean, basically I went through my table of contents for the first 10 years and um, I, I knew I wanted to get a certain, certain writers in. So I, and most of those writers I have done, mul I have picked multiple stories from, not all of them, but some. Um, so it was actually a balancing act because I wanted to get at least two stories from each volume. So I think I, there are two to four stories from each of the 10 volumes. Um, I also did not want to duplicate. Two years ago, um, my book Nightmares came out and that was for tacking on press and it was it's called, uh, I think, A New Decade in Modern Horror. And a lot of the stories in that book were also from my year's best over the years. So I didn't want to duplicate any of those stories. So I had to basically pick stories that, I tried to pick stories that may not have been reprinted a lot. And I wanted to pick different lengths and I wanted to pick different writers. So it was kind of a juggling act of what I came up with. But, um, Mostly I picked stories that I remembered. I mean, I remember a lot of what I published, but you know, yeah. when there are certain stories that stick in your mind. So I kind of chose, I made a big list for each year um, from each volume. And then I kind of picked and chose and tried to mix it around. So it worked out. And I can't remember, it's a pretty big book. I don't remember how many words it is, but it's at least, I mean, I'd have to look it up. Um, it's at least, it's at least 160,000, maybe 200,000 words. I, I don't remember. I have to look it up. Now, uh, tell me a little bit more about the Mad Hatters and March Hares project. Okay. I have always loved Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, um, probably as much for the illustrations as for the text. And for years, I've been collecting. Um, different versions of different illustrated Alice's. So I've always been, it's not an obsession, but I just love it. I love how different, right, different artists treat characters. And um, I was at a convention a few years ago where I was being interviewed and someone asked, someone actually in the audience said, well, what, I have done a couple of anthologies that were influenced by certain writers like Lovecraft Unbound and a few, and Children of Lovecraft and um, Poe. So I, I, and those were anthologies that I, I asked the writers to write stories that were influenced by those writers. And someone in the audience said, well, what else, who else would you like to do a book, an anthology by? And I said, I don't know. It's like, um, I don't know, stories maybe inspired by Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And after the panel, a whole bunch of, mostly women came up to me in the bars. We want to be in that book. Let's do it. Please do it. So I said, oh, okay, it's actually not a bad idea. So that's basically how the idea came to me. Um, and then I was uh, luckily able to get tour to buy it. And so that's what I, you know, so that's what the book is. It's stories influenced by Lewis Carroll. More by, I mean, what, this is one of the anthologies like Poe, where I asked the writers to tell me what character or what aspect of the over, of the theme they were going to write about so I wouldn't get too many repetitions. Although I did find I was getting too many repetitions of use of reflections and mirrors, so I had to tell people, oh, okay, for the writers who hadn't written stories yet, I said, no more mirrors. I don't want any mirrors in here <laughs> or reflections. Um, so that's basically how I did it, and that's what the book's about. It's stories um, influenced by Lewis Carroll and or 
characters or the actual stories of Alice. And there's one, there are a couple of horror stories, it's mostly fantasy and dark fantasy, but there are a couple of horror, actual horror stories in there too. Oh, that's wonderful. I, oh, let's see. What else was I going to ask about? Um, well, with your working with, with Omni, um, was, was that your initial foray into editing? It was my first time ever working with a magazine. I had been in book publishing for about five, five miserable years. Well, I wouldn't say not miserable, but it was basically getting nowhere slowly. Mm. <laughs> I started in book publishing as a sales secretary for Little Brown in New York, I had a New York office, and I was an editorial assistant. And I got to be so assistant editor at some publisher, but I didn't really have, didn't get to, I didn't, I did not flourish in publish in book publishing. Um, and then when I was, when I was unemployed in between jobs at some point, someone from an old, one of the companies I worked at mentioned this new magazine Omni and maybe I could get a job there. That was, the, the book publishers I worked for were mainstream book publishers. It was trade publishing. It was, you know, not academic publishing. It was like Little Brown, Crown, uh, Holt Reinhardt and Winston. But anyway, so Omni was the first publish first job I ever got in magazine publishing. And um, that was around 19. <sighs> Omni had started October 78. I think I started there around 79, possibly. Um, late 79. What happened is, uh, you know, someone at Holt said, why don't you go and talk to some, this guy, uh, Omni, who's the editor, uh, that was Frank Kendig. Frank Kendig was doing a book for, the, for Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston, so that's how this other editor knew him and he knew he was the head of Omni, wanted to go talk to him. So I did. Um, and Ben Bova was the fiction editor at the time. And I said, I, you know, hey, I'd love to work with you. I like science fiction, you know. And they said, yeah, that's nice. You know, I was like, we don't need you. But <laughs> um, Ben did not have an assistant at the time, he had a secretary who did not read any fiction at all. Oh. Um, usually, usually at, at least in science fiction, usually the publisher, uh, an editor would have an assistant who was interested in the field and would read the slush pile. In this case, Ben only had a secretary who did not read slush for him. Do you know what slush is? Yes. yes. Okay, all right. But anyway, um, I kept kind of, I talked to Ben a few times and he, I, I basically harangued him every few months. He said, hey, is there an opening? Hey, is there an opening? And I went in and talked to him and um, it was the year of the Brighton World Con in 1979 or 80. Um, and he was going to England for like a month or something or three weeks. And I was going for the first time to the West Coast, um, California for like, we were over, we were gonna be over, I was gonna be back one week before he was. And I said, and he had, it was, you know, when slush was actually paper. I said, I can read your slush pile. I'll, I can read your slush pile and catch up before you get back. And, he, and, I don't, I, and I don't know why, first let me think about it, but he didn't even know me from a hole in the wall. I don't know why he would trust me with his slush pile, but he did. <laughs> and sure enough, I was able to, you know, winnow it down. And when I came back, he basically just said, hang around, hang, you know, keep hanging around, just hang around. And I said, what do you mean? You know, hang around the office, see if you can help anybody. Well, now everyone else was nonfiction, right? Science and future. And... And here I am, this idiot who no one knows, you know, and say, hey, can I help you do something? And I was like, go away, you know, leave me alone. No, we don't know who you are. What do you, what do you mean? But what, ha what was happening, and I didn't realize, was Ben was going to be promoted to editor of the magazine. Um, Frank Kendig was out. Ben was being promoted to the editor, and a new fiction editor was coming in, Bob Sheckley. And Bob, I became Bob's assistant, although I was actually associate fiction editor. So that's what was going on. So at that point, even though I had really bad luck in book publishing, it, Omni was kind of being in the right place at the right time. So that's how I got into Omni. And then I worked there for 17 years and I was made fiction editor. Bob, um, he was there about a year and a half, I think. And he, was, he took the job partly because the first time I think he ever had a salary and, and an expense account. And um, he also had a writing block, so he wasn't writing. So. What happened is about a year or a year and a half into his fiction editorship, he started writing again and he wanted to take two months off in the summer 
um, to write. And Ben said, okay. And I was kind of acting fiction editor during that point. And then Bob, and Bob wanted another month and Ben said, forget it and fired him. Or, you know, said, no, you can't have another month. And um, after much back and forth, I was made the fiction editor. So that's how that happened. Okay. I mean, that is a, that is a wonderful stroke of luck of, no, you can't have another month. You can just have forever. Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think he was ready to leave the job anyway. At that point, um, Bob, Ben was giving a lot of pushback about Bob's decisions. They had very different tastes. Um, but the interesting thing is that neither Bob nor I had been in this position before. And I didn't know and he didn't know that usually assistants don't read everything. I mean, they usually read the slush pile and pass on the good stuff, but they don't necessarily read the good stuff. You know, they, I read they don't necessarily read. Um, the stories from people who are well known, but I not neither was knowing the process. I read everything that came in first, and I passed it on to Bob. It was like only maybe one or two stories the entire time he was there that he saw first. Oh, wow. So I got a lot more power and a lot more influence than I would have otherwise without even realizing what was going on. So, so that was fun. That was good. Yeah, it was kind of a learn as you go along. Well, actually, I, one thing I was going to say is editing is always learning on the job. You cannot teach editing. The only actual teaching I ever was subjected to is um, at one point Ben Bova came, you know, said, here, line edit this, the first two pages of the story. I don't even remember if it was something being published or not. And I did whatever I thought, you know, I made suggestions. And he went over those two pages and he said, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? That is, but that's really, that's kind of to show you in the right direction. Well, you have to have a reason for why you want to fix something or change something. But other than that, it really is learning on the job and yeah. learning how to edit. You can't teach that. I'm not talking about copy editor. That's different. That's, you can teach. That's punctuation and grammar. Um, yes. But line editing, substantive editing is something you learn. You, you can, you have to have some instinct for it to begin with. And part of it is not overwhelming, not imposing your voice, tone, taste on the writer, on the work that you're working on. Okay. Now, uh, oh, let's see. Pete Rollick asks, uh, she seems to work with a variety of publishers, both large and small, and even non-traditional, such as Dark Horse Comics. What is your approach for deciding what anthologies go to which publisher? Well, whoever will buy them, basically. <laughs> and I have to say, Dark Horse is a real anomaly. And not to put Dark Horse down, I mean, Dark Horse is a great comic publisher. They have no clue how to publish books. And I have no idea why they any, bought any books from me. The first book that I did for them um, was called Lovecraft Unbound. And it was, I think that was the one that was because um, Rob Simpson was there. And he was someone, an old friend of mine who worked in comics in New York and then moved to wherever Dark Horse is, Oregon, I think, and um, was supposed to set up a book line. And he called, I don't know why they called it Empress. I still have no idea where the name came from. I mean, it was like, that's not a, what kind of name is that? And why is it a name printed Dark Horse? But he's the one who commissioned Lovecraft Unbound, my first Lovecrafting anthology. Mm -hmm. And um, then he was, he was let go. Before, before the book came out, he was gone, all right? So I got a new editor. Um, and then the new editor said, hey, you want to do another book? Or I said, you want me to do it? I said, she said, sure. So I did another one for her. Um, and that was Supernatural Noir, which, which I really loved doing, a uh, combination of Supernatural and War stories, which I would love to do a second volume of. And then she left. <laughs> and then I had a new editor. And he said, hey, you want to do another book? I said, yeah, sure. So I did Nightmare Carnival. So I think I only did three. And... Nightmare Carnival didn't do well for whatever reason. Um, and then they don't want to do any more books with me. You know, this is how some things work in publishers. But Dark Horse has never, I don't know what, they don't do books now. They don't, they hardly ever do books. Do, their books are only compilations of their graphic novels. So that was kind of an anomaly. But basically, I'll, there are certain, to answer Pete, I, I have certain publishers I've worked with a lot, um, Tour, for example. And I usually send the things I think that they'll buy to them first, unless it's a big 
idea and my agent thinks that she can sell it mainstream, which has happened in the past. Um, one of my first anthologies, Alien Sex, was sold to William Morrow, but not, not a genre division, but just the mainstream part. Um, and it was because she, my agent knew this young other, this editor who was interested. And actually it was not supposed to be called Alien Sex, but we always called it the Alien Sex Anthology. It's, that's a great title. So, okay. <laughs> you know, so it totally depends on circumstance. Like I've lost editors, like I lost my editor. I had different editors at tour and my most recent editor, Liz Gorinsky, has left. So it's like, you know, how am I going to, am I going to be able to sell another book to tour? I don't know. Um, some of my books do well for them and some don't. So it's a question of if they're willing to invest in another book that might not burn out, but will maybe get award nomination and attention. So it varies. I mean, I'm, it's not my fa My publishers are not faithful to me. I am not faithful to them. It's not a question of that. Whoever will buy it, basically. I mean, and I think we'll do a good job, too, of course. It has to be a combination. Sometimes new publishers are willing to take a chance on an anthology and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, you know, and that's okay too. You do a one shot. Um, I mean, I'm still, I'm proud of all my books, whether they earn out or not. I think they're good books. And you, you know, the, it, it, what's odd is you don't know why a book does well versus why a book doesn't do well. Although most of my, I'd say that non-theme anthologies do not do as well as theme anthologies, which is why most editors get theme anthologies. It's the real, a non-theme anthology is a very hard sell to the publisher and to the public. Even though the public says, oh, yeah, we want non-theme anthologies, not enough of them want them to make it viable. Okay, because the the sales are low? Right, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, why I did, that's why I did Fearful Symmetry as a, as a Kickstarter. I won't do it again, but I did that with Cheesing, and we did a Kickstarter, and so we knew it was going to earn out. As, you know, We knew we were going to make the money back as soon as we published it. Um, but most, uh, many of my other anthologies that have been, I mean, Inferno won every award, I think, around, but it didn't do well. <laughs> I mean, it didn't turn out. You know, so Salon Fantastique that Terry and I um, edited, it didn't sell well, but it won the World Fantasy Award. So, who, you know, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, you never know when lightning's gonna strike. Well, that's true. And lightning has struck twice for me in the past, which means I got a lot of money for anthologies that I knew. I mean, too much money. I mean, I knew that. My agent knew that. But so what? You know, I said, it's never going to earn out. And she said, so what? You go back to your usual advances. So one time you get a lot of money. That's nice. <laughs> it's not like I'm an author. It's a different situation. Um, and what's weird, of course, is the book that I'm talking about, Naked City, that was an urban fantasy anthology, it sold 27,000 hardcover, which to me is terrific. But to them, because of what they paid, it sucked. <laughs> but, you know, but the sales for these 27,000 copies is pretty damn good for a hardcover anthology. Yes. So, so that's and, it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of had a big, uh, I kind of had a thought in my mind of, the approach for deciding which go where would be like, is that in their wheelhouse? Would I even go anywhere by? Yeah. Uh, no, that's definitely important um, to be aware of. I mean, I, you know, if I, there are publishers, well, also there, there are publishers who do certain anthologies and they're not going to take on another anthology right away. Um, and yeah, it, I do reprint anthologies for Tachyon and we have to come up with the right theme that they think they can sell. And Jacob always wants a big theme relatively rather than a small theme. Um, and it's hard to think something up. I'm right now we're trying to work on figuring out a, a theme anthology. It, it'll be all reprints, but, um, and that's easier for me to do in a way. I mean, I, in that case, it is kind of an open, not an open market, but I mean, cause I don't pay much for reprints, but, um, but I will, I ask them, all my writers, do you have any stories about such and such? And then, you know, I will look at, you know, I'm aware of some of the thematic stories that people have written. Um, but yeah, it's coming up with the right idea and the right title. Excellent. Now, uh, let's, uh, oh man, different themes. So are certain, do you see certain themes coming up? within the next six months that authors should be aware of? 
You mean that they should avoid? <laughs> yes, that too. Well, actually, I just uh, interestingly, I was just thinking about something. I just read a story about something, and I realized I have a story coming out um, in an anthology. I have a ghost story anthology coming out. It was supposed to come out this fall. It's coming out next fall called Echoes, the saga anthology of ghost stories. That's really big. That's like, I think that's 227,000 words. And it's all re originals, but three reprints. Um, but the, the, there's a story in there and a story I just read that are about people's having, people having Alzheimer's, hmm. the disease and losing their selves. And I know other people have written about them. That seems to be something that's a concern naturally to people who are, um, who are faced with that in their parents or themselves. And I think I'm not looking, I mean, in a way, it's the kind of thing that can be tiresome really quickly because if you don't do anything interesting with it, it's just someone losing their memory. And it's, it's when a theme becomes too much of a, well, it's like cyberpunk. Cyberpunk, when it started out, was really fresh and new. It was a way of looking at things, it was tonal. But then it became, but then you have to have the branching off of what stories use, then it becomes, uh, it, bec <laughs> it becomes trappings, but you have to have a really good story, you know, this story is not about cyberpunk. It is about something, and the cyberpunk is he is trapped. And in the way that's kind of like other themes, other things that become when people well, it's like when you have a, a vampire story, you can't do a vampire story now that will work to say, oh, surprise, this person's a vampire, and that's the story. No, because we because we've been doing that for fifty years. We've known that for fifty years or more. Yeah, more than that. Um, so, years. so yeah, I mean, so it's what you do with it. And so the same thing, the Alzheimer's theme, the theme of forgetfulness of losing yourself, losing your memory, you have to do something really extraordinary with it to make it different. Or it's just another, oh, someone's losing their memory, is it real or not? Are they remembering things or not? Um, so that if people have to be careful of that. So I would never, um, that's something I'm noticing lately, that kind of story, whether it's a theme, I'm not sure if it's a full blown theme, or something that's an interest that people are taking in that subject. Um, well, it, maybe because. Well, at least I'm not getting it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, uh, it it seems to me that it is a worn out trope because it's more of a reminder of actual reality and we want to read fiction to escape what we have to face on a daily basis. Yes, I mean, it's really depressing to read about people losing their minds, you know, and, and that's something that we may all face, or a lot of us will face. But on the other hand, a lot of horror, psychological horror is based on reality, unless it's some super killer, you know. But, um, so, and we like reading about that. I mean, if it's well done. So I wouldn't, so it depends on why you read horror, why you read stories. Do you read horror? I, I do, I do. I'm, uh, I'm actually currently reading uh, Christina Henry's Alice. I'm in the middle of that because a friend gave it to me and, and he was like, read this. And what I is it? Okay. Uh, Alice. It's oh. an Alice in Wonderland uh, twist. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's horror? No. Oh. Kind of. It's it's more of a thriller. Uh, it, it's an alternate universe, Alice mm -hmm. in Wonderland. Okay. So that, that kind of sparked my interest in, uh, in, in how Mad Hatters and March Hares came about. Um, and let's see. Um... What was I going to say? Which one of these science fiction novels and works are your favorite and why? Is it uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Dune? And why would that be? The books, you mean? Oh, the movies, obviously. It has yeah, book, books, um, movies. Well, well but do, yeah, but Star Wars isn't originally a movie, neither is Star Trek. Um, I mean, yeah. it isn't originally a text. No. Uh, they were about the same. I mean, I actually saw the Dune. I finally, I never saw the Dune, the D David Lynch Dune, and it's much better than I expected. Let's put it that way. It was mm -hmm. fun. I mean, it's weird and it's fun, and you know, 
okay. <laughs> um, I have, I like Star Wars. I don't usually, I have to admit, I haven't seen anything beyond the first, like, two or so Star Trek movies. Um, I enjoy them, but that's not the kind. I, I realize what I really like are crime movies, shoot em up crime movies. The More. which ones? Shoot em up crime movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. no. um, I like crime movies. <laughs> More than, I mean, I like science fiction movies, um, and I like the last Star Wars, the most recent Star Wars. I think I saw one. I don't even know if it's the most recent one. The one, see, I can't remember the title. <laughs> I, can't, I can't either, like Into uh, Darkness or something. Maybe. that Was that the last one about a year ago? No well, that was the last one I saw. I, and there may be one since. I'm not even sure. I, so I'm confused. But <laughs> how, how did Alien Sex come about? Uh... Okay, actually, that and Blood is Not Enough were my two first partly original anthologies. And they both came about, I was working at Omni Magazine, and it hadn't even occurred, I mean, I had edited a few Omni anthologies, just best Omnis, you know, like for Zebra, we did like, I don't know, six books of just reprints from Omni. So those are the only anthologies I had done so far. And one of my colleagues, uh, I assume you know that Omni was connected to Penthouse, owned by Bob Buccioni. Well, one, uh, someone I knew at Penthouse approached me about, he said, why don't you do, you know, I may be getting a gig being an editor for a series of anthologies, science fiction anthologies. Would you be interested? Can you give me some pitches? You know, and, and I'd hire you to, if it happens, I'll hire you to be, be an editor, be the editor. So I came up with um, a bunch of stories, actually three or four pitches. One was for Alien Sex, and I assume I just called it that. One was vampires, and one was um, monkey stories. And basically, they were based on the stories that I had turned down for Omni. Like, I had turned down Pope of the Chimps by Bob Sheckley. I'm not sure why I turned it down. I, I love the story. But, but there, and Rachel and Love, um, some, at least one other one, her furry face. So there were those stories. And also, okay, so for alien sex, there were stories I turned down, like Dancing Chickens, her furry face. Um, anyway, some stories that I thought were too sexual. And this is when I started out in Omni, and I later would have published them. Some of them, I think, and definitely some of them I would have, but some were just too harsh for uh, what I thought would be for a national magazine. Um, so I had turned them down, but I loved them. So those were the, those were kind of the kernel of these anthology ideas. So I mentioned that here I, I would take these stories and I would commission six others or something. So two of the ideas were the vampirism one, which became Blood Is Not Enough, and um, I don't. As I said, I don't remember if I called it Alien Sex, but the sex anthology, and that became Alien Sex. But actually, my title was off limits, which I called the second volume that we, I eventually did. Um, I wanted to call it Off Limits. And, but we, but my agent, and, oh, Marilyn Hyfe is, is my agent, but she was, a, and she was first a friend and that she was an agent. said, I'll represent you if you want. I said, okay. So she would call it the alien sex anthology. And, um, and so she got the attention of this young editor at Morrow. I think it was William Morrow. No, William Morrow did what is not enough. Alien sex was, hmm. I'm trying to remember. I have the book on my shelf. I can't remember who did the paperback, uh, the hardcover. Oh, well. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's how that sold from, you know, the, those anthology. Oh, oh, the thing with my colleague never panned out, of course. I mean, it didn't happen. But I said, well, I have these ideas for anthologies now. What should I do with them? I must have had dinner with Merrily or something. So well, I'll try to sell them. I can try to sell them. So that's what happened. I mean, I had done them for something else. That's how a lot of things happen. It's serendipity. You know, you do something for one thing, it doesn't pan out, but maybe later on, maybe a year later, it'll pan out to something else. And that happens with anthology ideas. I mean, I have dead I have a file of dead anthology ideas, but, you know, once in a while, I may trot one out and say, hey, you know, to a new editor or someone or just someone and say, hey, I'm, I'm you know, who's interested in doing anthologies with me and say, well, do you have any ideas? Well, how about this? And then they'll say, yeah, sure, I like that. You know, that's happened with anthologies that I, I had, I've had anthologies I couldn't sell. Um, and then eventually they did sell, you know, because I trotted out this old idea that I loved, but I couldn't sell. Have you ever had a story that you absolutely loved, but you could not find a home for? Oh, yeah, many times. Sure. 
I mean, in Omni, I had turned down stories that I adored, but I didn't feel they were right for Omni. Um, but then, I, but see, those stories, many of those stories, I would reprint. I was able to reprint um, in other anthology, in anthologies when I was doing anthologies. Um, and when I, when the, if there's a story that I'm sent and I really, really love that story and I have no place to publish it, I will re recommend other places. A magazine is I don't know who else is doing what anthologies, but I'll often, you know, if I really love a story and if I, it's, it depends on why I'm turning it down. Um, and yeah, there are stories that are totally inappropriate, but I might try to fit them into whatever I'm working on. Like tour.com, I can pretty much buy what I want for the short stories, and as long as I have room and we have limited space because, well, because there are several pe people soliciting stories for it. Um, but sometimes, once in a while there's a story that I'm just not sure is right for Core.com. Um, in fact, I just bought a story, a, non a science fiction story that's, I, I have pu published a couple of stories that are pretty offensive, that could be considered offensive. <laughs> on Twitter.com, and um, at least two of them have been published um, and with no problem. In fact, both of them won awards, but um, so there. <laughs> um, but I was hesitant. Well, okay, I was not hesitant about buying it. Um, one of the stories I'm thinking of is Fabulous Beast by Priya Sharma, which won mm -hmm. the British Fantasy Award, I think, and um, was nominated for a bunch of other awards, and it's now in her new collection, all the fabulous pieces. I think it was a terrific collection. Um, and I don't remember being hesitant about buying it at all, but we did, put a I think we put a trigger warning on it, I can't remember. And that's the only story we've done that with, if we did it, I'm not sure. And then the other story I was hesitant about because it was so, I thought it was right for tour.com, but it was just, it's really kind of disgusting. And that, uh, A Human Stain by Kelly Rose, which won the Nebula Award, even though it's hard. <laughs> Um, you know, anyway, so I just bought this uh, new story that has a lot of sex in it and bad sex, but you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so what was it? Oh yeah. If I, yeah. Um, I used to be, well, when I started out in Omni, when I was first promoted, I was, I was concerned with, there are certain stories that I did not, I still think I made the right decision about not taking them for Omni, although I thought they were very publishable. Some of them were nominated for awards and they were really great stories. But yeah, you have to make a, a judgment call whether it's right for the venue you're working in. Yes. And if that's the case, I will definitely recommend those stories to someone else who I think could take it. So at, uh, at tour, um, let's see, I know that, uh, that it's, it's more of a fantasy than science fiction at tour or is it an, no, no, well, it's developing. mostly science fiction and fan. We're talking about Twitter.com, the website, right? Yes. yes. Uh, science fiction. I oh, okay. I have done more horror and fantasy, but I'm starting to do. I've been in the last year or two. I've been publishing more. I've been acquiring more science fiction because <clears throat> I want to get back into. I wanted to get back into science fiction editing. Okay. Um, so it's a combination. It's completely mixed, and you can see actually the stories are. Uh, you can index, you can find the index by who edited them, who wrote them, and what genre they considered. So you can, if you want only science fiction stories, you can look it up and see which are the science fiction stories. And if you want horror, you can find that, or dark fantasy. So it's actually for people who don't want to mix their reading and are very oh. about only reading science fiction and see what we, what is considered science fiction. Obviously, if there's occasionally crossover, something might be science fiction and horror. Okay. Now, with uh, tell me a little bit more about Event Horizon. Event Horizon was started by me and Rob Kilheffer and Pat, Pam Weintraub and Kathy Stein, my colleagues at Omni. Once Omni, when Omni stopped publishing around '98, I guess it was. I think our last online issue or something. We decided to create a new magazine, a new website slash magazine that was called. Event Horizon, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, and it won. It was basically what Tour.com and a lot of other websites became. Um, it was fiction. We had interviews with writers. We had uh, columns, monthly what columns. Um, we had Lucia Shepard and Doug Winter and people writing whatever they wanted to, as long as it somehow may have, could relate. But some of it was pretty tenuous. Um, 
to, to genre, uh, to fiction at all. We had Round Robin. Um, you know, we had, it was a full-blown magazine, a website with a whole bunch of things on it um, that reprints and original stories. We published um, uh, The Girl the Girl Detective and the Specialist had were published at first by Kelly Lang. Je I published early Jeff Ford stories um, there. Um, it was great. It was fun. But we funded it ourselves and we tried to get advertising. And we did get some advertising, except we no one knew how to chase the money for the advertisers. <laughs> oh, no. So we never got paid for the little advertising we got. Uh, it lasted a year and a half. We couldn't. We didn't know. It was It was 19... It was around 1999 to 2000, I guess. It was a year and a half, I think. And, you know, we didn't have, we couldn't make money out of it. And after a while, we couldn't, we couldn't either spend our own money anymore. And we didn't have, some of us had got other jobs and couldn't afford to do it anymore. So we suspended it. You know, that's basically what happens with a lot of, even now today, uh, mm -hmm. magazines when you're real. But, you know, at that point, it was like we were really early on in the website business. We had created at Omni. We had created um, to make. We had we had done uh, EOSCon to one and two. EOSCon was an online convention that we produced for EOS uh, publisher, uh, part of which was Harper Collins, and we did online panels and things like that. It was fun, and so we did that. We did those two, but then we got paid for that. We wanted to do that. Um, we hoped to do that for Event Horizon, but it wasn't enough money. We didn't know what, you know, it was pretty primitive. I don't, you know, we didn't have Google Chat and stuff like that at the time. So the chatting was kind of primitive. I, I could understand that. And then also the chasing the ad money as well. Um, you know, we had no one who actually was, you know, knew how to do that and how to like say, you owe us money, blah, blah, blah. You know, yes. Yeah, it was Rob, Rob, I mean, Pam and Kathy Simon really behind the scenes. Rob and I ran that. I mean, he did all the production and he did some, he produced and acquired most of the nonfiction and I did the fiction and some of the nonfiction. Okay. It was fun. It was great. I mean, we loved doing it and it was a really good website. But, you know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yes, I understand. Now, Matthew M. Bartlett asks, um, what do you enjoy the most about attending conventions? Hanging out with my friends. It's like a floating party, you know? So it, that's basically what it is. Um, it's seeing the people who, it, it, it feels like, you know, you just continue these conversations that you've had in other conventions. And sometimes I don't remember where people actually live because I just see them at conventions. <laughs> but it's, so it's making contact with new people, new writers, and, and just hanging out with my friends. So that's the most fun. The panels are up. I don't go to other people's panels, and um, I love the coffee clutches. They're fun. I'm gonna get to meet, um, you know, only like ten people, fifteen people at a time, and just talk about whatever they want. I, you know, I talk. I try to get them to ask me questions about whatever they want to know, kind of like mm -hmm. this. But there are fifteen of them. Yes. <laughs> And unfortunately, I am but, but one human being, so I imagine my conversation must be fairly limited. No, um, there are other people who ask you questions, so there we go. Yes. Um, but uh, speaking of coffee and, and coffee clicks, uh, small, I'm going to take a brief moment to speak of our sponsor, uh, Birds of a Feather Coffee Company. Roast unique craft coffees in small batches, so it's always fresh. Their signature blends showcase the amazing breadth and depth of flavors that coffee has to offer. The Night Owl blend, for instance, is a deep, rich cup of coffee with notes of smooth caramel, decadent cocoa, and bittersweet molasses with just a touch of acidity to cleanse the palate so you're ready for the next sip. Uh, check out all of Bird's Coffees and order now at birdscoffeecompany.com. And I hear my phone in the background, and that's okay. They can leave a voicemail. Now I'm curious about the night owl coffee. Does that mean it's decaf? Because otherwise, how no. it always just keep you awake when you're a night owl? Keep that's you awake. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, it's, it's quite delicious at birdscoffeecompany.com. Um, but yes, thank, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me today. 
But uh, let's see, what is the most gracious response to the setbacks and rejections that you have faced as an editor from different publications that may not want to accept that pitch? You mean, um, you mean when I try to pitch a book to someone? Yeah, yeah. Well, I they just say no. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this it's, is you know, it's basically you know we love your stuff, but we can't sell it. I mean, you know, that's it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's different from me re rejecting stories. I mean, it, it's a different process. You know, I don't feel it's a different kind of rejection. I don't feel the rejection that a writer would feel. This. Wanting to do an anthology, especially if I haven't done it yet, is not painful. I mean, yeah, I really want to do that anthology, but it's not gonna. It's not part of me. It's not an emotional uh, investment. Threat. Well, no, no, not at all. So it's a whole different situation from being a writer. And I actually, one the, one of the nicest things I've ever heard about myself is that I give the nicest rejections in the industry. <laughs> At least have in the past, and I haven't heard that lately. But that's probably oh. because lately, I mean, mostly I, I only um, look at solicited manuscripts. I, I don't look at slush piles. Um, but I try, when I do, get, when I reject a writer, it depends on whether I know them or work with them a lot. There are very few writers that say, this sucks. You know, occasionally if I've worked with someone, I said, I hate this story. This is like the worst thing you've ever written. Why did oh. you? I mean, this, you know, I may have said that once to someone, and I can think of who it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I bought many of the person's other stories, so you know he knew that it was not to take it personally. However, there are some writers who take every rejection personally, no matter how many stories you bought by them. And it's like, and they say you hate me. It's like you hate me. Oh, look who's here! My this is my friend Jack. Oh, my monster Jack. And there he goes. Oh, beautiful uh, little creature. He's big and he's a bastard. Sorry. Bite <laughs> <laughs> me. Yeah. Anyway. Um, there are some people who are so super sensitive that you can't reject anything of theirs without them getting upset. And mm. as a writer, you have to, you have to get a scab. I mean, you have to like, not let that, you can't, you have to learn to not take it personally because mm -hmm. it's, it's not, well, I mean, I'm not saying it's never personal. I mean, maybe someone hates you, but it's usually not that it's a story. You know, and it's the story, it may not work, and it may not work for that editor. It doesn't mean it's not going to work for another editor. I mean, there are horrible rejections. I mean, I'm sh sure that I have heard, I have seen, well, I've heard that people have gotten horrible rejections from editors, and that's inexcusable. Um, I mean, I think it's, what I'm saying, it's usually not personal, but once in a while it is, and then you just have to. Go to your friends and say this person's a jerk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but don't ever write back to editors. I mean, don't ever respond to rejection letters. You know, that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. See, now now you say don't ever respond to rejection letters. Uh, from a personal experience, the only response that I've ever given to rejection letters are "thank you for your time." Well, right. I appreciate okay. it. And, sometimes, and if a rejection letter gives you information about how to make your story better, that's a good thing. Yes. Um, I once, uh, I have over the years gotten three nasty responses to rejection letters where the person berated me for, for, for being a terrible editor, being a terrible person. Oh, I obviously, this, obviously that, obviously didn't read the story. But the weirdest one was, um, you know, Publishers Weekly, right? Mm -hmm. They used to have a My Say column. For all I know, they still do. I don't know. Um, but one time I'm reading, this is when I actually got Publishers Weekly. I didn't buy it myself because it's too expensive, but I was at a publishing house. I was at Omni, probably. And I get, and I look at the My Say column, and I said, this sounds really familiar. Oh, God, this woman's talking about me. <laughs> and, and what she was saying that she sent a story in, she got a letter, um, with suggestions and how horrible this is that this that this editor gave her suggestions about her story. How dare she? Oh. And I wrote back and said, "Are you kidding me? I mean, most That's of my writers cold. would beg for for feedback from me. I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I wrote it in a nicer way, yes. but that was like, are you kidding me? You know, this person is complaining because someone gave her feedback. Like, boy, you're an idiot. You're never going to get published, whoever you are. <laughs> oh, my. That was kind of weird. But the other ones are just insane. 
um, they were male, three male writers, three male writers who eventually who would send, who swore in their letters they would never send me anything again. Who within three years all sent me things, <laughs> never apologizing, never acknowledging acknowledging that they were assholes and wrote these stupid letters, which I have on file because I kept everything. They're all at Liverpool University. <laughs> so yes, editors don't forget either when we're. Mm -hmm abused <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask is there is there really such a thing as the dreaded blacklist floating around between no, some of you no 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 i mean okay. great story i'll buy it if it's a great story by someone i don't like i will i will probably buy it only if i don't have to work with them on it i mean if it's like really almost you know perfect um but the people who for some reason or another I may not, I might find repellent, probably would not write the kind of story I would buy in the first place. Seriously, you know, it's I'm very horrible. Um, depends on what you, you know, but no, there is no blacklist. Right? Okay. I, I didn't really think that so. I know of, I mean, <laughs> sorry. It's, a, it's okay. See, I'm, I'm more used to speaking to writers and creators uh, and not, not editors. This do is... Think, do they think there's a blacklist against them? No, no. Um, paranoid people might. No. Uh, some of the in, independent ones, I believe, I've seen some comments back and forth on a couple of forums mm -hmm. of different genre writers and independent only. Um, they self-publish? Is that what you mean? Or what? what do you mean by um, just uh, either either uh, names that I have not recognized before? Uh, struggling. Writers. Well, I wouldn't call that independent. I would call yeah, free I, agent. I guess one would call that. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Have they published before? Are these people who have published? Or I I don't think so. Oh, and then the movies—they're one of one. You know, hopeful, hope, yeah. hopeful writers, hopeful writers to be. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad to have a name to put to that mm -hmm. um, now. So no blacklist. Nope. nope. Okay. Well, that's that is great to know. Um, other than editing fine works of fiction. What is one thing that you are exceptionally good at that does not involve the written word? Finding bargains and antiquing and, and shopping. I'm, okay. a, I'm a prime shopper. Hey, get off there. Jack, <laughs> Jack's trying to get on. Oh, if you knock that lamp over, I'm going to kill you. <gasps> oh, no. Jack? Oh, God. All right, he's jumping. As long as my other cat's not there, I mean, they, they fight. He's about to jump onto a a big sh a, top, a shelf, and as long as the other cat's not on that shelf, it's okay. If the other cat's here, it's going to be a disaster. Oh no! I think it's going to fall. But anyway, Jack's there. Like, oh, I need to be here too. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, please come here. Don't do that. Oh. Um, now, what are I'm you? A, I'm a. I'm a. What is it? Uh, what's the, the top karate thing? Anyway, I'm a sh top shopper. Okay. What are you? My friends. <laughs> what are you really bad at? Oh, a lot of things, but let me think. <laughs> Getting rid of books. Cleaning <laughs> <laughs> my back room, which is a wreck. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I I get I have way too many books. I have a storage locker of books, mostly some of my own, but also other people's. Mm -hmm. And even though I mean, I it's because I've been editing a year's best for. 31 years, and that's why, because I may only keep, <laughs> I didn't hear him screaming, so okay. I may only keep 1% of those books, but even so 1% of 30 years worth of incoming titles is still oh. all over the place. So I'm constantly trying to get them out of my house. I hate making my bed. Oh, I'm terrible at making my bed. <laughs> I, you know, seriously, you asked, I, I hate it. Okay. I have a cleaning person come in more to make my bed than anything else. I don't mind vacuuming. I don't mind washing my floor once in a blue moon. But making, but changing the linen of my bed is like agonizing to me. Oh, I'm see, at it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the first thing I do when I wake up is make the bed. No, I mean changing the linen. Oh, change the linens. Yes. Yeah. 
I do that about once a week. You do? I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I usually have someone come in once every two weeks or so. Okay. Now, of the three genres, which one is your favorite? Horror, sci-fi, or fantasy? I think horror is for now. It's been for a while, and I, I do like the dark a lot. <clears throat> Although it switches, you know. I mean, but I love certain a lot of fantasy stories. I love a lot of science fiction, which is why I'm trying to get more into science fiction again. But I think horror for now, so. The dark is a comfortable place to be. Mm, I don't know about that, but it's, it's not very comfortable. It's not very comfortable but it's good. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I'm going to ask you a music question. All right. What's the first music album you bought with your own money? I think it was. Um, I think it was. I'm trying to remember the title. Um, it was a Rolling Stones album, High Grass and Rolling Hills. It was like a compilation album, not a compilation of that stuff. I remember the cover. It had kind of it had blue on it and the four guys, five guys, okay. whatever, in the band. <laughs> I think that was the first one I ever bought. Okay. Um, oh, let's see. Now, Ellen, I'm going to go ahead and go a little meta here. Uh-oh. What question do you wish I would have asked you so far? I don't know. See, that I don't know. I, I, I have no imagination. You don't understand. That's why I'm an editor. And <laughs> seriously, an editor versus a writer. I cannot, I don't have any ideas of my own. I have to use other people's ideas. So this is actually goes into that. I have no idea what, you've asked me things that are fine, that I like answering. Okay. There's nothing special. <laughs> okay. Now, next one. Let's see. What's the most agonizing career decision that you have ever had to make? Oh, well, no, this wasn't. Well, it was agonizing, not because it wasn't a career decision. It was a decision to save my life in a way. And it was a job decision. Um, I had worked for four, maybe six miserable months. I worked for this guy, Don Fine who is well-known in the publishing industry, mainstream publishing, for being a jerk and an asshole and abusive towards his employees. And I guess I worked there for like around six months. I started, I was desperate. The only, I was warned not to take a job with him, but I was desperate at the time. I had run out of unemployment. You know, I just had to take a job. And so I worked with him. I worked in that, um, it was, called, at the time, his publishing house was called Arbor House. And it was very, it was a small house, well-known, a lot of respect for it good books. He was a good editor. He was a shitty human being. Um, I moved in six months from receptionist to assistant editor. I did the good thing about it. I did. I learned a little about publicity. We, it was a small office. We did everything. I did some sub rights. I did publicity. I did marketing. And I actually did edited my first book there. I edited a romance book. Um, and then within, but I was miserable. And but. In that period of time, I moved from being the farthest from him in the office, like the receptionist. He wanted me to be his assistant, his assistant quit. And that's when I put my foot down. I said, no, um, I can't. I, I don't want to. I resign. And I didn't know if I'd got unemployment after working there because I was quitting. <clears throat> but, I mean, basically, I woke up every morning sick to my stomach. I mean, he never was abusive towards me, but just he, apparently, like, at least twice a year, the building management in the, the whole building complained or were complained to by neighboring offices because they could hear him cursing so loudly. And I finally, I resigned. And um, it was one of the hardest things I've done. Nothing to do with career, but to do with my life because I was basically, I was like sick to my stomach every day. And, and my, I guess my parents, I mean, I, I told my parents, I mean, I knew I wouldn't starve, but it was still pretty, worrisome. I didn't have a job when I resigned. And I realized now afterwards, I probably would have gotten unemployment. And, oh, within two weeks, I got another job. But I probably would have gotten unemployment because I'm sure the guy had a reputation for being abusive. I mean, I think. So I think I might have gotten unemployment. That was one of the hardest things I'd done because I didn't know what I was going to do next. You know, I didn't have a job. I had no idea what I was going to do next. And it was just lucky, again, happenstance that I got a job at Reinhardt and Winston within the Time I resigned. I was one of the few people who resigned. Most people ran out screaming, crying, actually. Oh, wow. But mostly female. Yeah. So, um, but other than that, you know, 
that's it. <laughs> that, wow. Yeah, I mean, he to, was, to work for a time. He was a monster, and when he died, we all celebrated. You know, it's like, oh, he's gone. You know, I would dance on his grave if I ever was near it. He was a piece of shit. Okay. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. It's okay. I mean, there, there were there were more people like that than there are now. I think there are fewer editors, publishers, can get away with that now. Um, but at that time, there were a few people like that. There were. Mm, I applied, oh, well, this wasn't agonizing at all. It was easy, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was working at Omni. I think I was still working at Omni. And I was, um, a job opened up with a, a, a publisher or an editor um, and another person who was pretty bad towards her employees. Not as bad as Dawn Fine was, but still, she had a reputation. And when I met her, she was actually really nice to me. And... I would have been put in charge of this company, I mean, this imprint, pretty much. Not totally in charge, but still, I would have been a senior editor. And I agonized over it. I went back and called um, two people who had worked with her before, and I said, tell me why I shouldn't take this job. I said, don't take the job. <laughs> and I said, don't take the job. Remember, this is why. She's horrible. Don't do it. And I, I mean, the thing is, I, I don't know why I would have left Omni. Maybe Omni was faltering, and I thought we were going to go out of business. It couldn't have been because I didn't have a job at the time. I don't think, but maybe. So, I mean, it was, um, I'm glad I didn't, I mean, I'm not a good book editor anyway. I wouldn't admit I would be miserable. Even but working with that person, it would have been like, why? You know, it would have been. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually can't remember, maybe I was unemployed. I can't imagine even going for the interview if I was employed. So maybe I was looking for a job at the time. I don't know. That's one thing that I have noticed over the years is, is don't necessarily take fully to somebody, to somebody else's, else's reputation, reputation. Um, because that's because someone that's else's, someone else's interpretation. Not when enough people say the same thing, you want okay. to pay attention. It, no, I'm glad I didn't take the job. No, she would have been abusive towards me. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. No, I'm sure she would have been. Uh, no, I mean, I they were right. I mean, I knew that I wouldn't want to work for that person. I mean, I, I don't regret that at all. I knew that <laughs> I was the right decision. I, it was the only reason I was tempted is because I was fooled by her being nice. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew her reputation as being horrible to most people. Okay. And which means she would turn on me, you know. I mean, Don Fine would die. He would be like, okay, one minute, and then he'd turn on you and, and be like, Figuratively kick in the teeth. I mean, he's a drunk. So, you know, you know, when you enough people say it, you do believe it. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. And now, now you're now sorry. You're, I didn't mean to bug you. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> you're reminding me of someone that I've worked for in the past. Yeah. I mean, I don't think these people get away with this kind of thing as much as they certainly not as much as they did. Um, you do read about people getting away with sexual harassment, but that's a whole different, that's different. And it's also more insidious, I think, than just being openly, verbally abusive towards your employees. That's true. Um, that's true. Yeah. Because openly, openly, verbally abusive, abusive, I definitely, definitely, like, who needs this shit? For a while. Yeah. I mean, it's scary if you don't, you know, if you're in a position where you don't feel you can leave the job, it's really bad. Yeah. And that's in any field, not just publishing. That's true. Now, our interviews generally last for about an hour. But if you continue, that, that's fine. Absolutely. I'm fine to go on a little bit. I just have to go shopping after this. No big deal. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, how did you make it to this Babysitting. Oh, I would get an, I got an allowance when I was a kid. But I babysat. <laughs> And that was fun. I love babysitting because the kids I babysat were not babies. They were not little. I just put them in bed, ate all the candy and watched all the TV. What, you know, that was fun. I never had any problems. Like, no one got sick. No one had any problems. Um, it was a great job babysitting. And I made some extra money. So that was my very first job. Okay. Someone just, uh, Zoe Keating, who is a fabulous um, musician, a celloist. She um, just said, you know, what are your, what are some of the jobs you've had? On Twitter, she was doing sort of kind of a thing. And I went back through it. I realized I didn't even include all of them. I mean, I've had, 
know, people have a lot of different jobs though in their lives until they get into the, if they're lucky, they get into the career that they want. You know, but up until getting to it, going to publishing, I, have, I did a lot of things that were, you know, part-time gigs mostly. No, not very interesting. I did, I attempt for a long time, for uh, a lot of times, like for Kelly Girls, which was a temp agency, um, where you would go to some place for like two or three days. I worked in a lot of banks, which were so boring. Yes. Reception. Reception days. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh, my goodness. How do you like to like the reset button? After a terrible After a day, day or experience. experience. Hmm. Well, it's hard. Since I work from home, it's kind of a weird. I'm not sure how to answer that. I have to think. I have to think outside of well, when I'm home. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't answer that. I just don't. I don't. I'm, I'm not someone. You know, it, it's weird. I'm not depressive at all. So I am so easily jollied out of depression that it's stupid. You know, it's like. Yeah, my cats will come play with me. Yeah, I'll have, you know, it's like <laughs> uh, anything, you know, talking to a friend. Uh, I'm trying to think of a bad situation. I mean, a specific situation, and I can't. Okay. Well, I just do something else. I just turn around and do something else. Um, I don't watch TV. I, I'm only allowed to watch my television, which is not a television, but just the DVDs. I'm only I have a schedule. I'm allowed to watch Friday nights and Saturdays. Other than that, I'm not allowed to watch it. It's my own self self imposed regulation, or I would be watching it too much. Yeah, so I look forward to those Friday. I try not to schedule things for Friday night or Saturday night that'll interfere with my date with myself. Okay. <laughs> so I know I can look forward to watching whatever I'm watching. A bit, my binge watching or whatever. Okay. Now you are a wonderful person. Person. For me to ask me this to ask question. question. Um, you have the power, the power to create, to create one perfect movie or TV adaptation of a story. story you have purchased purchase for an anthology. For an anthology past. Past. Which one do you Which feel? You okay, I'll pick something recent only because it's easier in a way. Um, I mean, I have a lot of favorite stories over the years, and they're probably one of my best of the year and the best of the best of the year. Um, but there's a story, there's a story that I just published um, in The Devil in the Deep that, I'm, that I, I'm very fond of. It's humorous horror and I usually hate humorous horror. And I think it could be adapted, but it would have to be adapted perfectly well or they'd screw it up. <clears throat> and it's called Shit Happens and it's by Michael Marshall Smith and it takes place on the Queen Mary. And something awful happens on shore. Well, these, oh no, no, something comes from the sea, some kind of disease or something. I don't remember how. And basically, some it's a, it's a corporate event. It's based on the StokerCon that was on the Queen Mary, but it's not a scientific, it's not a horror event. It's a corporate event. And um, this from the character, one point of, character, point of view character. And a lot of the people, the people on the boat become zombie ish. You know, they, um, but it's funny, it's hilarious. And um, so it'd have to be done with a totally deft touch, you know, with his, with his dialogue, you know. And, and then there's this person on the shore, his secretary, who you never see until the very end, see, I mean, you don't see her anyway, but um, who is like the super duper secretary who will make it, who will office manager who like, we'll bring it, we'll create everything perfectly. We'll make everything right. And I would love to see that done as a really perfect adaptation, you know, but I can't see it happening. I mean, it's a good. I could see someone doing it, adapting it as an episode of a of a um, a Twilight Zone or it's, you know whatever kind of horror triptych, but I can't see them doing it right. It's because it's, it's especially because it's horror and humor. As I said, for me, most horror humor does not work at all. I usually find it heavy-handed and stupid, and this one actually is horrific and hilarious. So I would love to see that done, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> Well, again, oh, Ellen, again, Ellen, thank you, thank so, you much so much for taking for taking this week with me. It's been it's been fun. Thank you. Well, have a wonderful afternoon shopping. It's not shopping for fun. It's shopping. Um, what am I doing? I don't know. Oh, yogurt. I have to get. I have to go to the green market <laughs> and get my yogurt. I'm I'm ahead of time. I'm ahead of myself. Time to get some potatoes. So.
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I'd love to be on the show again. Absolutely, Ellen. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.